0: PART 2 SECTION 18 OF THE DARK FLOWER This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE DARK FLOWER by John Galsworthy SECTION 35 When she woke once more, in daylight, smiling crammier was standing beside her chair. His face, all dark and bitter, had the sodden look of a man very tired. So, he said, sleeping this way doesn't spoil your dreams. Don't let me disturb them. I am just going back to town. Like a frightened bird, she stayed not stirring, gazing at his back as he leaned in the window. Till turning round on her again, he said, But remember this, what I can't have, no one else shall. Do you understand? No one else and he bent down close repeating do you understand you bad wife four years submission to a touch she shrank from one long effort not to shrink bad wife not if you killed her would she answer now do you hear he said once more make up your mind to that i mean it he had gripped the arms of her chair till she could feel it quiver beneath her Would he drive his fist into her face that she managed to keep still smiling? But there only passed into his eyes an expression which she could not read. Well, he said, you know, and walked heavily towards the door. The moment he had gone, she sprang up. Yes, she was a bad wife. A wife who had reached the end of her tether. A wife who hated instead of loving. A wife in prison. Bad wife martyrdom then for the sake of a faith that in her that was lost already could be but folly if she seemed bad and false to him there was no longer a reason to pretend to be otherwise no longer would she in the words of the old song sit and sigh pulling bracken pulling bracken no more would she starve for her want of love and watch the nights throb and ache as last night had throbbed and ached with the passion that she might not satisfy And while she was dressing, she wondered why she did not look tired, to get out quickly, to send her lover word at once, to hasten her while it was safe, that she might tell him she was coming to him out of prison. She would telegraph for him to come that evening with a boat, opposite the tall poplar. She and her aunt and uncle were to go to dinner at the rectory, but she would plead headache at the last minute. When the air had gone, she would slip out, and he and she would row over to the wood, and be together for two hours of happiness. And they must make a clear plan too. For tomorrow they would begin their life together. But it would not be safe to send that message from the village. She must go down and over the bridge to the post office on the other side. Where they did not know her. It was too late now before breakfast. Better after when she could slip away. Knowing for certain that her husband had gone. It would never still be too late for her telegram. Lenin never left his rooms till the midday post which brought her letters. She finished dressing, and knowing that she must show no trace of her excitement, sat quite still for several minutes, forcing herself into languor. Then she went down. Her husband had breakfasted and gone. At everything she did and every word she spoke, she was now smiling with a sort of wonder, as if she were watching herself that she had abandoned like an old garment, perform for her amusement. It even gave her no feeling of remorse to think she was going to do what would be so painful to the good colonel. He was dear to her, but it did not matter. She was past all that. Nothing mattered, nothing in the world. It amused her to believe that her uncle and aunt misread her last night's walk in the dark garden, misread her languor and serenity, and at the first moment possible she flew out and slipped away under the cover of the yew trees towards the river passing the spot where her husband had dragged her down to him, on her hands in the grass. She felt a sort of surprise, that she could never have been so terrified. What was he? The past? Nothing. And she flew on. She noted carefully the river bank opposite the tall poplar. It would be quite easy to get down from there into a boat. But they would not stay in that dark backwater. They would go over to the far side into these woods from which last night the moon had risen. Those woods from which the pigeons mocked her every morning. Those woods so full of summer. Coming back, no one would see her landing, for it would be pitch dark in the backwater, and while she hurried, she looked back across her shoulder, marking where the water entering ceased to be bright. A dragonfly brushed her cheek. She saw it vanish when the sunlight failed. How suddenly its happy flight was quenched in the dark shade, as a candle flame blown out. The tree growth there was too thick. The queer stumps and snags had uncanny shapes as of monstrous creatures whose eyes seemed to peer at you she shivered she had seen those monsters with their peering eyes somewhere in her dream at monte carlo of that bull face staring from the banks while she drifted by unable to cry out no the backwater was not a happy place they would not stay there a single minute and more swiftly than ever she flew on along the path Soon she had crossed the bridge, sent off her message, and returned. But there were ten hours to get through before eight o'clock, and she did not hurry now. She wanted this day of summer to herself, alone, a day of dreaming till it came. This day for her, which all her life till now had been shaping her, a day of love. Fate was very wonderful. If she had ever loved before, if she had known joy in her marriage, she could never have been feeling what she was feeling now. What she well knew she would never feel again. She crossed a new mown hayfield, and finding a bank threw herself down on her back among its uncut grass. Far away at the other end, men were scything. It was all very beautiful. The soft clouds floating, the clover stalks pushing themselves against her palms, and the stems of the tall couch grass cooled through her cheeks. Little blue butterflies, a lark, invisible, the scent of the ripe hay, and the gold fairy arrows of the sun on her face and limbs. To grow and reach the hour of summer, all must do that. That was the meaning of life. She had no more doubts and fears. She had no more dread, no bitterness, and no remorse for what she was going to do. She was doing it because she must, as well as grass stays ripening because it shall be cut down. She had instead a sense of something blessed and uplifting. Whatever power had made her heart, had placed within it this love. Whatever it was, whoever it was, could not be angry with her. A wild bee settled on her arm, and she held it up between her and the sun, so that she might enjoy its dusky glamour. It would not sting her, not today. The little blue butterflies, too, kept alighting on her, who lay there so still, and the love songs of the wood pigeons never ceased, nor the faint swish of the scything. At last she rose to make her way home, a telegram had come saying simply, "Yes." She read it with an unmoved face, having resorted again to her mask of languor. Towards tea time, she confessed a headache, and said she would lie down. Up there in her room, she spent those three hours writing, writing as best she could all she had passed through in thought and feeling, before making her decision. It seemed to her that she owed it to herself to tell her lover how she had come to what she had never thought to come to. She put what she had written in an envelope and sealed it. She would give it to him that he might read and understand when she had shown him with Oliver how she loved him. It would pass the time for him till tomorrow until they set out on their new life together. For tonight they would make their plans and tomorrow start. At half past seven she sent word that her headache was too bad to allow her to go out this brought a visit from mrs ericott the colonel and she were so distressed but perhaps olive was wise not to exert herself and presently the colonel himself spoke laboriously through the door not well enough to come no fun without her but she mustn't on any account strain herself no no her heart smote her at that he was always so good to her at last watching from the corridor She saw them, Sally, forth down the drive, the colonel a little in advance, carrying his wife's evening shoes. How nice he looked with his brown face and his gray mustache, so upright and concerned with what he had in hand. There was no languor in her now. She had dressed in white, and now she took a blue silk coat with a hood and caught up the flower that had so miraculously survived last night's wearing and pinned it at her breast. Then, making sure no servant was about, she slipped downstairs and out. It was just eight, and the sun still glistened on the dovecot. She kept away from that lest the birds should come fluttering about her and betray her by cooing. When she had nearly reached the towpath, she stopped affrightened. Surely something had moved, something heavy with the sound of broken branches. Was it the memory of last night come on her again, or indeed someone there? She walked back a few steps foolish alarm. In the meadow beyond, a cow was brushing against the hedge and stealing along the grass. Out onto the towpath, she went swiftly towards the poplar. End of section 35.